It's an honor to be preaching on Father's Day, and especially to start service with, with baptism. Um, today's passage is, we're going to be looking at 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 to 18, and you can go ahead and start working your way there. As we begin, before we, we jump into the lesson, I want us to remember some of the things that we've talked about over the last few weeks, some of the things that Landon's been teaching us concerning the major ideas and themes in 1 John. Uh, and as we begin, I want to remind us of the key verse for the entire book, which comes from chapter 5, verse 13, and it says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. In, in 1 John five thirteen, John is telling us that he wrote this book so that we, believers, would have assurance and certainty in our salvation and in our eternal life. John and God doesn't want us, believers, to struggle with doubt, to be overcome with angst about our salvation. He wants us to have certainty and assurance. And so this this book is not written to try to convince us to believe in Christ. That was the point of his gospel. This book is written to believers that we might have assurance and certainty in our relationship with him. And as John is building to that point, he's, he's laid out a few different tests for us to match against our lives, to, to help us know that we do have assurance. And the first test is the moral test, which is what Landon talked about last week. And in this test, we see that we can have certainty about our relationship with God if we follow his commands. The second test is a social test, which is what we're looking at today. And in this social test, we can see that we have assurance in our salvation if we love our brother. And a couple weeks ago, he talked about the Christological test, which tells us that we can have certainty in our relationship with Jesus if we abide in the truth of Jesus. It's important to note that John is, is circling back through these ideas. This isn't the first time that he's brought up these, these tests. This is actually the second time we're, we're going around through them. And he's kind of intensifying them as he goes, and he's giving us more understanding and more clarity as he cycles back through them. And that's exactly what he's doing in our passage today. He's not just reiterating the social test, but as he reintroduces this idea to us, he's adding to our understanding, he's adding to our clarity so that we can see it a little bit better. And he he even intensifies the standard that it puts on us. And in this passage, he gives us a working definition of love, and that brings me to the big idea for today. The big idea is that believers can have certainty about their relationship with Jesus if the overall direction of their lives is marked by love for their brother, but a love that is action and not just word. I want to take a second to make a side note about the passage before we get into it. I want to talk about terminology because I want us to be clear on the front end that when John uses the term brother, his focus is fellow believers. Now that does not mean that John thinks that we shouldn't love our neighbor, non-believers. The New Testament is filled with passages that tell us to love our neighbors. And that's something that we certainly are commanded to do. But I don't think that that's the focus of this passage. 
And I think the reason is that John is ultimately driving to that point that we should be a good representation of the gospel by loving our neighbor, but it has to start here first, in-house, with each other, specifically in our context. We have to love each other within our church community. Because if we can't love each other well, then we can't love non-believers well. If we can't love the children of God well, how are we gonna love our neighbors? The reason I bring this up and the reason I make this distinction is because I think it would be easy for me, given our current cultural context, to take this passage and to make it into some kind of political stance. And I just don't think that that's what the, the passage is about. And honestly, for me to take this passage and to twist it to fit that cultural context, I think it would mean that I was failing the social test because it wouldn't be very loving of me to mishandle and misrepresent God's word to you. And so I just wanted to be clear on the front end about this because I didn't want anybody to leave here frustrated that I didn't take the opportunity to speak into our cultural situation. I just don't think that the text affords that. And if you have an issue with that, I would love to speak to you afterwards. But for now, what we're going to do is we're going to read our text and we're gonna talk about what it looks like for Christians to love Christians, and more specifically, what it looks like for us here at Emmanuel to love each other. So grab your Bibles, and let's read 1 John three eleven to 18. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Let's pray. God, we come together this morning as your people your children to proclaim that you are holy and righteous, to bring glory and honor to your name, to study your word. God, I pray that as we look in the scriptures this morning that you would reveal truth to us, that we would understand the social test a little bit better, that you would bring clarity to our understanding, and that clarity would lead to conviction, and that conviction would lead to action. God, we thank you for this time to study your word. We pray that you are honored and glorified in it. Most of all, we pray that we leave here looking more like Jesus than when we got here. It's in his name we pray. One of the most effective tools in teaching is comparing and contrasting. 
Um, we, we, we see that Landon is used comparing and contrasting a lot the last several weeks, and that's because John is using comparing and contrasting a lot in this book, in his, his teaching. Uh, if you remember a couple weeks ago, Landon used the, the compare and contrast of real Jif peanut butter versus the, the cheap store brand stuff, and one is really good peanut butter, and one is, you know, peanut butter, right? Uh, well, because this is a powerful tool, and because John is using this tool in, in this passage today, I wanted to use this tool as an illustration at the beginning. I love student ministry, and one thing that I love about student ministry is that I love to get out and play games and sports with students. I love to play ultimate frisbee and football and Newcomb. This last Wednesday, the student ministry got together to play Newcomb for the first time this summer, and it was awesome. I love playing Newcomb. Newcomb is a game that our student ministry has kind of adopted as our group game, and I know it's summer when we're out playing Newcomb. Um, but I love, I love doing this because it energizes me. And inevitably, whenever we meet with students to play sports, we end up having at least one game that's adults versus students. And the adults 99.9% of the time win because we're awesome. Uh, <laughs> it makes us feel like we're not quite as old as, as we are. Um, boosts our ego a little bit. But a couple weeks ago, the student ministry had a pool party at the Ray's house. And I hope you guys know Josiah Ray. He is 14 years old, he's 6'4", and he can dunk on a 10-foot goal. And I was standing in the Ray's driveway at this pool party, and I was watching Josiah play basketball. And I was thinking to myself, the adults are in trouble. Our losing streak is about to be up. Because this dude can ball, he can play. He's actually right now at a tournament in Dallas for some elite basketball team um, just tearing it up. And so if you look at Josiah and you look at me, you find an example of what you would want to be like if you go play sports with students, and you find an example of what you would not want to be like. And to that I would say, don't be so rough on Josiah. <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, he's, he's about to put me to shame very quickly. Uh, but this is, this is what John is doing in this passage is he's, he's comparing and contrasting a bad example and a good example in, in looking at love and hate. But this isn't the first time that John has, has done this. We, he's, he's been using this technique of comparing and contrasting this whole book. Um, it's a powerful tool. And this comparison that he's presenting in this passage is very drastic. And somewhat because he's changing themes here. Up to this point in the, in the book of 1 John, his, his big idea about God has been that God is light. And in this passage, he's shifting that idea, and the idea is becoming God is love. And right out of the gate, as he's shifting this theme, he's telling us that if God is a God of love, then as Christians, we have to love each other. We have to. In John's mind, the importance of Christians loving each other cannot be overstated. So much so that he's making this argument about Cain. We can see that in his mind, he's likening hating to murder. But that shouldn't surprise us, right? Because we've, we've heard that before. If we remember back to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus tells us, you've heard that it was said for those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. 
Jesus is saying the exact same thing that John is saying, but John is just taking it and intensifying it. And he's taking us back to the first brothers in scripture and subsequently to the first murder in scripture. And he wants us to remember this story of Cain and Abel because he wants us to be just as disgusted with our own hate towards our brothers as we are with with what Cain did to his brother. My hope is that as Christians, when you think about the story of Cain and Abel, that you're disgusted by what Cain did to Abel. And John's hope is that you're just as disgusted with your own hatred for your own brother. And this is where we get our first point. And, and you'll notice that I kind of piggybacked off of the question that Landon asked last week, but I think it's a good question. As we're cycling back through these different tests, we should be reading it and asking ourselves, how does it add to our understanding of, of this test since we've already looked at this test? So our question is, in 1 John three eleven to 18, how does John add to our understanding of the social test? And I would say the first point is that we should love one another and not follow the example of Cain. Last week, Landon said that this cyclical writing pattern that John has, is, it's hard to study, especially in, in our context where we're taking little bit by little bit each week. It's because this style of writing is really meant to be studied all together at once. And this text is, is a perfect example of that because what Landon talked about last week with children of the devil versus children of God flows straight into what John is talking about in this passage. He's continuing that idea and he's saying that true children of God, children who are born of God, are going to do the right or the righteous thing and that includes loving your brother. Whereas the children of the devil, those born of the devil, are not going to do the right and righteous thing. They're going to hate and even murder. And I think John's goal in this comparison is to draw our minds Back to his gospel in John 13, 35, where he says this. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Our love for other Christians is what should set us apart from the rest of the world. It's what tells the world, I'm a follower of Christ. My life belongs to him. My life is identified with his and when you read 1 John 3, 11 to 15, it's, it's a pretty clear contrast between the children of God and the children of the devil, between love and hate. And this recall of Cain, in that John is giving us this ultimate picture of hate. Hatred that leads to murder for somebody that we should be loving. Very sharp contrast. And you might hear that first point and you might think to yourself, well, sure, that's obvious. Of course, I'm not supposed to be a murderer like Cain. But I think for us, we have a tendency as Christians to very easily lose sight of the fact that the gospel is rooted and founded in love. That's why John is saying, starting in verse 11, that this is the message that you've heard from the beginning. From the very moment of your conversion, you heard that you should love one another. John knows that we have this tendency as Christians to get wrapped up in ourselves, to get wrapped up in our, in our own sinful, fleshly hatred that comes so naturally to us. and Lose sight of the true gospel, that it's rooted in love. 
And he wants us to remember that we've been, what we've been called to from the very beginning of this new life. And that's the second point. He wants us to remember that love is the foundation of the gospel. But we also have to remember that this word love, it's not just something that we were introduced to at the beginning of our Christian experience. This word love is repeated again and again throughout the New Testament. And I just want us to take just a second to, to read a sampling of some of the passages that John is, is alluding to in his. John thirteen thirty four. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. John 15, 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. John 15, 17. These things I command you so that you will love one another. And continuing in Romans 12, 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. In Romans 13, 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other for the love of for, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. In 1 Peter 4, 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. This idea of loving each other as Christians is all throughout the New Testament. Last week, Landon showed us a graph of how many times the word love appears throughout the New Testament. And we saw that John uh, uses the word love far and above any other New Testament writer. Um, and he will continue this idea of love and loving each other throughout the rest of this book and into his, his next one. And as I was studying this, this lesson and reading commentaries and, and trying to, to wrap my head around this, loving each other, I read a, a commentary by Danny Aiken. I hope you remember that Danny Aiken did our marriage conference this year. It was really good. Uh, his commentary is really good as well. But in that commentary, he says this about this passage. He says, John, following Jesus, says we are to love consistently and comprehensively, continually and individually, play no favorites, show no biases, practice no discriminations among your brothers and sisters. After all, we are family. Love for others flows out of God's love for us. It is at the heart of the gospel. Now, obviously, if you believe that Scripture is divinely inspired, and I, I hope you do, that this is not just coming from John, but it's the Holy Spirit speaking through John, then maybe we should take notice that God thinks that us loving each other is pretty important. But it's important to note that John is not just trying to compare and contrast love and hate. He's bringing up the story of Cain and Abel because he also wants us to see Cain's heart behind his hatred. Cain's actions reveal who his true spiritual father is, the devil. Abel brought a sacrifice to God that was righteous and it was accepted. Cain brought a sacrifice to God that was sinful and it was not accepted. And Cain hated his brother for it, so much so that he murdered his own flesh and blood. And to all that, John says to us, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. It's natural that the world, which in this passage is, is represented by Cain, it's natural for the world to hate what is good and righteous. That means it's natural for the world to hate you and me as Christians because the world's father hates us. We shouldn't be surprised or caught off guard when people like Cain hate us. But we should also not be like Cain and give in to that desire to hate that comes so naturally to humans. Because we 
are ultimately people who have been changed by the truth of the gospel. The gospel that's founded and rooted in love. But as we analyze this passage, and we keep in mind that this is a social test, and it is designed to give us assurance, that means that that John is, is looking to do more than just to compare and contrast these ideas of love and hate. It means that he's looking to do more than just remind us where hate comes from and what it looks like. He's trying to go beyond that and show us that when we have true gospel-centered love in our hearts, that really does provide us with assurance and certainty about our relationship with Jesus. And that's the next point, that love provides assurance of salvation. But as we look at this, we have, to, we have to see what John is saying and what he's not saying. John is saying that when we live lives that have been changed by the gospel, and when we love Christians because we love the gospel, then we can look back on our lives and we can have assurance. We can have certainty that we do have a relationship with Jesus. We are secure in that relationship. What John is not saying is that we earn salvation by loving Christians. That's not, what, that's not at all what he's saying. He wants us to see that when we do love Christians, that in itself is evidence that we have eternal life. Because love for God's children is a marker that we are God's child. As we love each other in Christian community together, as we at Emmanuel love each other in our Christian community, we can have assurance that we are part of God's family. And again, that's a sharp contrast to those who live lives that are filled with hate. Their hatred is nothing but evidence that they have not been born again, that they are not part of God's family. And that's very clearly stated in verse 15. If we have an attitude of hate in our hearts, it's equivalent to being murderers in the eyes of God. That's what Jesus was talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. And that's the point that John wants us to get here, is that if, if we don't have love, we don't have life. Love and hate are moral and spiritual opposites. They can't exist in the same heart at the same time. But the good news is that John John is not just telling us to not follow the example of Cain. He's reminding us of the example that we are supposed to follow. And in verses 16 to 18, he's pointing us back to the example of Christ. And he's showing us what real love actually looks like. And that's the next point. We should follow the example of Christ and serve Christ others. I think the idea that John wants us to understand about love is that real love, the love of God, it's directly linked to action and not just word. Real love is something that we can perceive. It's tangible. We can touch it. It's not just an idea or a theory. And what makes this hard for us is that in our world and in our culture, our world has such a warped and twisted understanding of what real love is. 
Love is everywhere in our culture. We love love. We love to talk about love. We love to write about love. We love to sing about love. But how much of our world really understands true, real love? You just follow this illustration that John has already laid out with Cain and Abel, and you look back at at Adam and Eve. What you see is that Adam and Eve experienced real, true love from God whenever he created them and placed them in the garden. They pretty quickly forgot that love and twisted it. And their son forgot it pretty quickly and twisted it and murdered his brother. So it shouldn't surprise us that even for those of us that have experienced the real, true love of God, through salvation, through being born again, through becoming his children, even though we've experienced that, it's easy for us to get distracted, to be swayed, and to warp our understanding of what real love looks like. Especially when we live in a culture that murders its babies at such an alarming rate. And I want us to look at some, some statistics on abortion in America from 1980 to 2016. These numbers were collected by the CDC. And this is only the ones that were reported. I hope that these numbers are shocking. And I hope it breaks your heart. It breaks my heart. But as John is saying, we shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't be surprised because all the world understands and knows is hate and murder. They don't understand what real love looks like. But the good news is that in Christ, as Christians, we get to experience the reversal of what the world knows. Because he died the death of deaths. He laid down his own life for you and for me. Not just tell us that he loved us. Show us that he loved us. And it's that example that John is pointing us to. It's that example that we're supposed to follow. It's in that example that I think we find a real definition of love. I don't know how many of you have students in student ministry, but if you do, I hope that you have at least heard of the faith process, because I I preach on the faith process all the time. I believe in it very strongly. It's a definition that I have I have given to students about faith, and it's it's meant to give them an, an understanding of faith where they can live it out in a practical way. And I believe so much in it in, in its practicality that I've painted it on the walls upstairs. So if they don't know it, they're just not looking, right? Um, but if you have a student, I encourage you ask them after this is over. Hey, what's the faith process? Um, put them on the spot. But just like I have the faith process that I I teach all the time, I also have a definition of love that I try to teach as well. I don't teach it quite as much as I teach the faith process, but I do teach it whenever I get the opportunity. It's because I believe that this definition of love is so powerful and it's so practical and it, it helps us understand what love looks like. And I actually got it from a guy named Josh McDowell. Josh McDowell is somewhat of a student ministry guru. He's written a lot of books. And I'm sure this is in one of his books somewhere, but I I heard him say it at a live event. And ever since I heard him say it, I have been repeating it to students because I think it's that powerful. And it goes like this. Love is choosing to provide for and protect someone emotionally, mentally. That's a a slash, not a comma, because they're, they're very closely related. Emotionally, mentally, physically, and spiritually, especially when you don't want to. And I added that last part, especially when you don't want to, because I think it it drives, as, as I'm teaching it to students, it drives back to the faith process in following scripture no matter what you feel. Um, and I just think that this is a very 
powerful illustration of what love is and gives us a practical application because we're taught so much in Christian culture that love is not a feeling, it's a choice, right? But what is that choice? I think it's this choice to provide and protect for someone in all of those ways. And the beauty of this definition is that it stresses the example of Christ in making an active choice to lay your life down for others, just as Christ did for us. Love through action and not just word. And that idea of laying our lives down for others, it's something that can be scary and intimidating to us, but it leads to the next point, that serving others may mean dying. My hope, and I believe John's hope, is that as we read this passage, I hope that as you read 1 John 3.16 that your mind is drawn back to John 3.16. There's a beautiful connection between these two verses that theologians have been pointing out for many, many years. Because in John 3.16, you have a demonstration of love, and in 1 John 3.16, you have an explanation of love. In in John 3.16, you have God substituting his son to die in our place, to sacrifice himself, to give himself up for us. And in 1 John 3.16, you have God calling us, his followers, to give our lives for others. The last couple weeks, Landon has mentioned abiding love in Christ. And as we think about abiding in the truth of his love, it makes us think about his own self-sacrifice. That his love is demonstrated through his self-sacrifice. That it's demonstrated through God substituting his son to die in our place. Because he lived the life that we were supposed to live that we couldn't live. He died the death that we were supposed to die, but now we don't have to die. And when we abide in that truth, that truth of his real love, that begins to shift our understanding of the gospel. It helps us to see that at its core, love is based in self-sacrifice and self-substitution. There may be times when the person on the receiving end of your own self-substitution, your own self-sacrifice, is completely unworthy, undeserving. But isn't that exactly what Christ did for us? It's in those situations our only reasonable response is to honor and glorify God. That we would be willing to lay down our own lives for the same sinful, wicked, hateful, murderous people that Jesus did. Which is what we read in Romans 5, right? For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one who will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare to even die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through the Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation.
in that situation, our only reasonable response is to honor and glorify God with our actions. But if we really understand the weight of the sacrifice that he made for us, really get it, then our response is not gonna be one out of obligation. It's not gonna be just us saying thank you. It means that we would joyfully and willingly lay down our own lives for others just because he did it for us. But that command to lay down our lives doesn't just come from John. Jesus said the same thing in John 15. John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Now I think for you and me, the reality is that we will likely never be faced with a situation where we have to lay down our lives for others. It's possible, but it's not very likely. Now that doesn't mean that it should detract from the fact that we should be joyfully willing to do so, but it's not going to be super likely for most of us. However, for all of us, we will always have the opportunity to serve others by giving. And that's the last point. Serving others will always involve giving of yourself. It sounds good for us to tell someone, I would die for you. It sounds honorable. It sounds noble. But isn't it just as honorable to be willing to give someone some food when they need it? Isn't it just as honorable to give them clothing when they need it or to open your home and to let them sleep on your couch until they can get back up on their feet or to help them pay bills or buy medication? Isn't that just as honorable and noble? Most people, especially when we're talking about our own church context, our own church community, most people don't need us to die for them. But there are lots of brothers in Christ that need us to give of ourselves. I think the way that John really adds to our understanding of the social test here is that he's giving us some basic, real, practical advice for what it really means to love each other just in our everyday lives. And this contrast that John is making here is that he's saying Jesus saw our need. He saw our need for salvation and he gave himself willingly to save us. But yet, we see our brother who's in need, and we so often turn a blind eye to it. And his question in that is is to say, if we can see a brother in need and turn a blind eye, does the love of God really reside in us? The answer should be no. Because God's love can't exist in us if we don't have true love for our brother. That's a very closely, that idea is very closely tied to what we read in James chapter two, where he says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Abiding faith in Christ, abiding love in Christ always going to result in abiding love for our brothers in Christ. Our culture tries to teach us that love is a feeling, it's an emotion, and that we express that love through eloquent speech or word. But 
John is telling us that through the example of Christ, true love is always, always shown through action. Not just spoken. And I love the way that he ends the thought here in verse 18 with the word truth. He's bringing it all back together to show us that there's a direct link between actions and motivation, especially when it comes to understanding words like love. Because we can say that we love someone, but if we never act on that and our words turn out empty because we don't prove our love through our action, then our motives are revealed to just be self-serving, hypocritical. And on the other end of the spectrum from that, you have, from, from hypocrisy, you have manipulation where your actions could be such that maybe you're doing something good for somebody, but your motivation behind it is impure. Neither one of those is a true representation of what love is. If we're going to show true, real love to our brothers, that love has to be motivated by a sincere gratitude for Christ and the true love that he's shown to us through his own self-sacrifice. And that motivation has to actually translate to real, tangible action. Because God cares about our motives and he cares about our actions. That's why John brings up Cain. Cain had evil motives, which led to evil actions, which resulted in him murdering his own brother, someone he should have loved. Cain is an example of a child of the devil. Well, Christ is an example of a child of God. And if we ever want to truly understand what love is, not both in motive and in action, all we have to do is look to the cross. Because our situation would be very, very different if Jesus only told us that he loved us, never actually did anything about it. 